This week, it's part two of my recent conversation with Eric Sammer, and we go back a little bit in time and talk about how we got to where we are in terms of modern stream processing, what was going on in the days immediately before Hadoop, how did Hadoop really set the stage for stream processing and really immediately give way to it, and, and what's happened since. Always a delightful time. Let's listen in to part two of Eric Sammer. Okay, I got you here. So you're you're a guy I can ask some some history questions about, um, history questions of. And I, I again, I, there's just a few points where maybe it was just me in the last 20 minutes of conversation. I was thinking these things, but I would love to hear from you on. Well, we talked about like ad tech, uh, and I don't. I actually don't know if you have any background there. But early, before there was. Kafka before there was Flink and, you know, there you had to build some custom key value store and like whatever, whatever it is you were doing uh, to do real time type type things. Um, what's the story as you were involved in it of of going from there through Hadoop to Flink and and the parts? I just love to it's a, sort of almost a part two here, but uh, yeah, tell tell us your story. Um, me personally and like how I made that or how you think like the industry went through that. Yeah. I, yes. The industry with special emphasis on the, yeah. the parts where you hit it. Yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, just a tiny bit of context. So I had joined Cloudera and I had gotten involved in the Hadoop ecosystem at an ad tech company. So I, I, I spent a bunch of time in, in the ad tech space and I joined Cloudera like, you know, mid 2010 or something like that. So it's like, my God, it's like 14 years ago. It's a long time yeah. ago, um, yeah. 13 and a half years ago. Um, and so I was pretty involved in the Hadoop ecosystem for a while. And at the time, I think that like, again, you sort of have to remember that this is pre-Parquet. This is pre-Avro. This is pre-Iceberg and Hootie and Delta Lake. This is the mm -hmm. way back machine. Like we rode... T-Rexes to the office every morning, you know, back in, back in these days. A lot of people don't know that, but yeah, right. we did. Um, <laughs> there was no Pinot. There was no, uh, there was no Presto or Trino. There was none of this stuff. And we, it was not common that data was placed in these big data lakes. Like that just wasn't a thing. There were filers. There were there were like network attached storage, um, you know, uh, boxes that there were NFS mounts that had shared data sets. Um, and you S3 didn't, you didn't query that stuff. I mean, you still had a data warehouse of the old school in a relational database. Right. Right. Yeah. At the time, Teradata and Oracle like ruled the mm -hmm. roost on like those things. DB2, you know, there were a bunch of those kinds of things. Smaller data marts were SQL Server and maybe Postgres and MySQL and those kinds of things. But anyway, so like Hadoop was really the first time that we were able to land like all clickstream data that ever happened in one place or every like API request that ever happened in one place. And right. S3 was, uh, was a thing back then, thing. but, but the tools to query it and like operate on it were not quite there. Right. 
And so Hadoop was the first thing that could not just store it, but could, but but could also query it. And like at the time, like you look at it today, and you're like, oh my goodness, it's like so antiquated. And like, haha, remember Hadoop? And it's like, yeah, I remember Hadoop. You know, it was not fun before that. Like, you know, and that actually made it substantially better. Um, the game changer. It was a game changer. There was always this question just like I think there is today with data warehousing systems and data lake systems, which is like, how do I get my data into it? Mm, okay. And so this question of data ingestion and data integration, as we called it back when we were writing our T-Rexes around, you know, became a hot button thing. And there was a bunch of like batch loads and like all these other kinds of things, but because the source systems tended to be, these online high throughput systems. And it came out of places like Yahoo and like all these other places. There was a lot of clickstream data. There was a lot of log data. And so that data naturally moved in, in real time. And so like there were definitely batch loads into um, HDFS and, and Hadoop at the time. And then eventually things like S3. But increasingly people were looking at, well, I want to, you know, like there's so much of it. I have no place to like really accumulate it. Like I don't want to like batch up an hour's worth of all my log files and then load it because it's just too big. The only place that has enough disk yeah. for that is the actual target system. Right, right. My, at that time, HDFS cluster. HDFS cluster at the time. And so like the very natural thing to do is to go like, cool, what if we actually just streamed it into that target system? And like, again, there, don't get me wrong. We didn't invent streaming when Hadoop came around, right? But like, it was this natural pairing to like think about it in those terms and to load on a continuous basis. Because like, forget batch and streaming. What we're actually talking about here is continuous data processing. Okay. Right? There you go. And and so it made sense to think about it in those terms. And at the time, Facebook had developed Scribe, which was their basically their streaming ingest system. Okay. And then I'm remembering that that term now, I'd forgotten it. But right, yeah. right. And then there were subsequent systems that came after that. Um, some of which I don't remember which ones were public and which ones aren't public. So I won't share names and stuff like that. But there were other systems that people like Facebook, including Facebook, had developed, you know, uh, after that. At the time I was at Cloudera, we were developing Flume, what is now Apache Flume. Uh, there were a bunch of people at, at Cloudera that had worked on that, which was basically built to be like a spiritual successor to Scribe. And I think in parallel, Jay and June Rao and Neha and sort of the whole LinkedIn crowd, uh, who are now Confluent folks, have been developing Kafka at, at LinkedIn. And so like I... I don't know that like that's the exact lineage, but like that was the way that I had sort of that was the lens by which I had seen it through, and I think that it and just the, continued the, to develop. And the sequence of those things is a thing that we could, you know, a historian could go look in in records and nail right. down. Point being, what's going on in the world at that 2012 2011 kind of time is, oh, uh, we actually have large amounts of things happening, and we need to deal with them now. Right. And, and tying together a bunch of specialized data infrastructure and systems, right? It was, 
on top of this, this data is so voluminous that you don't want to source it multiple times, right? So you don't want mm -hmm. people pulling that data. You want to pull it once and then be able to serve multiple people out of that. And that's where like PubSub and like Kafka, well, not PubSub, PubSub. PubSub's been around for a long time, but the idea of doing that with data versus just control messages, like prior to that, it was like RabbitMQ and ActiveMQ and MQ series and like all of these other things that were doing this, but they were doing it for like lower volume, smaller control messages versus like your actual data. And so like, I think that all that stuff grew out of that and then stream processing has been around forever or for a very long time, I should say. Um, but the connection between those two things actually just made a ton of sense. Like this, this development of like, oh, now that we have all of our data coming in off a streaming system, rather than land it and like slow it down, why don't I just send it to all of these other places in parallel, including sort of like application logic. And then like when you start to think about it from that perspective, you're like, oh, the Kappa architecture and like all these other things just like really start making a whole lot of sense. Yeah. Yeah. Um and that's and that's when they emerge. You mentioned this not being the beginning of stream processing. I'm reading a book right now called What Happened to Data or What Happened with Data. I'm uh, suddenly not sure of the preposition. There'll be a link in the show notes. Um, and it, it actually backs way up into the 19th century and the, the beginning of cap, you know, gathering statistics on the population of a city and the very idea of there being an average person and just the sort of the philosophical innovation of, of that. So super cool book and, and I think worth it for people in our line of work to, to read and, and reflect on. But uh, I'm at the point now where they're talking about the kinds of computers being developed in the 60s for the NSA to deal with streaming data. They've got signals intelligence is now able to, to do much more, you know, gather much more than anybody can analyze right now. And if you could store it all, you wouldn't be able to process it in the future. So, uh, you know, this as, as, you know, lots of ways to, to skin the cat, but is, is another kind of place you could look at as the birth of streaming data. And it's in, in, you know, super classified secret uh, things in, in three letter agencies. What you're talking <laughs> about kind of is the birth of, and it's, it's funny. Anytime I tweet something like this, you'll get a well, actually person wanting to say, well, that was happening 10 years before. <laughs> yeah, I, I, of course it was. It's, yes. it's wonderful. But this again is now tools becoming available that people who aren't you, you know, who aren't an infrastructure developer uh, can now understand the tools and use them. And they've got some kind of sane surface area on top of them that a developer who's trying to solve a problem in their narrow vertical use case of something that's useful to their customers and users and the business, they can now get their hands on that tool and, and, and solve a streaming problem and not be the NSA and not be Yahoo 2005 or 2007 right. or whatever. Right. Um, so I'm, I'm fine calling it the birth of, of streaming data with that lengthy two minute <laughs> qualification. <laughs> I actually think it's, it's really interesting to see where these things come from and, and sort of tracks similarly, like the advent of like the modern cloud platforms and, and all these other kinds of things. There are a lot of systems 
that people have access to these days, you know, real-time data and, and otherwise that have been like commoditized down to like a couple of dollars per day or something like that. And I think that that's just like, it, you know, I, I hate to be a nerd about it, but like, that's actually pretty cool. <laughs> it's pretty it really exciting. is. It really yeah. is that somebody can offer that profitably. Right. Um, to do that incredibly difficult, sophisticated, useful thing that took the smartest people available working on the problem to build the first version of it. And in the margins, it's worth $2 a day. Um, and, yeah. uh, I, 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 I kind of love that. Um, sort of the difference between, um, in the past I've, I've been a, a gardener. I've had a vegetable garden and I've always said that's, absolutely the least efficient way to get food that's possible it's it's gardening itself is a consumption good you enjoy the process of turning soil and water and sunlight into things that you can eat you like watching it it looks good on instagram it's it's whatever utility you get out of that it's not that you're getting food because you can go to the grocery store and you could buy a perfect pepper for 75 cents it's um, above my pay grade i'll tell you that like farming gardening all the way down yeah there you go and that's that's a little bit of what we're talking about, the process of, of uh, going from building your own and seeing that up close and personal and just how hard that is to, uh, you know, the, the, the output of Safeway <laughs> and the supply chains behind that. A, a question about the future then, um, and we can even wrap with this. Where is this going? It, it seems that, you know, solving hard problems and then those problems become commoditized and we find new hard problems to solve. Um, where is stream processing in real time pointed? And this could be whatever time horizon you want, however you want to take that question, where are we going? I think that, I think we're actually right on the, the cusp of, of this right now. We see it happening most people, when they draw their data platform, I think that streaming is the way that we connect to different systems. I think we want to source the data once. I think we want to have a single system that connects A to B. Um, and we optionally want to process data in between those two points. And I think that stream processing, its sweet spot is really in connecting uh, different systems. So like once the data lands inside of something like the data warehouse, you know, be it Snowflake or ClickHouse or whatever you're choosing for, for that kind of, um, that kind of uh, use case, it is totally possible that people will further refine that data but those refinements stay inside of that ecosystem. They stay within Snowflake. They stay within, you know, whatever the data warehousing system is. So, so terminal I, location. Yeah. Terminal location, right? That's a good word for it. That's a good phrase for it. Yeah. So, but I think that the way in which it gets, like, I, I'm, I'm going to use an analogy that people are going to make fun of me for, but like, I think stream processing is the interstate highway. And I think that batch processing within an, a single ecosystem are like the local roads. Like they are sufficient to get you, you know, these like the last mile, right, to your final destination. 
But if you really need to move sort of long distances, high volume, um, you have this like in the networking world, we would say like it's the core switch, right? It's the core router. Mm -hmm. It's the, it's the center. And then you have all of these like smaller trees that hang off of that in the, in the highway analogy, right? Like you have these major interstates that then feed into those local roads. And so, um, I tend to think that stream processing, and I think, you know, maybe as a method of, you know, uh, moving data between those two systems, connecting them, and optionally performing any impedance matching that needs to happen there. So, like, you take your data out of, again, like, you know, very concretely out of Postgres into Snowflake, but I need to, like, change these data types and I need to enrich this table with this other table and I need to like and it's it's always well if this thing is this then I enrich it like this and if not I have to check if that's there and if it's not then I you know I still want the pie but then not heated and uh, right yeah and so I think that modern stream processing coupled with event streaming systems like Kafka and Kinesis and Red Panda and sort of like you know GCP PubSub and all these other uh you know options that people have these days are the backbone of connecting these systems, performing optional uh, transformation um, that deal with not just operational to analytical uh, data plane connectivity, but also like operational systems to other operational systems. I want to do change data capture out of Postgres and I want to keep my full text search in elastic search up to date. Or I want to keep Pino up to date so that customer-facing analytics, you know, report the right result. Or I want to keep a Redis cache up to date. I think that stream processing is the way that we do that. And I think that people have a little bit of horse blenders on just like the data warehousing portion when we talk about data engineering. But I think when you look at the whole stack, stream processing is going to become the way in which we do this because it supports the online and the offline applications. It supports SQL and code. It supports change data capture style streams and append only streams. It supports multiple languages. Um, and it is vendor agnostic, right? Like Flink and Kafka don't care about cloud provider. They don't care about uh, database vendor. They don't care about all these other kinds of things. And coupled with PubSub, with like a Kafka or Red Panda or a Kinesis, you also have the cost efficiency of being able to feed multiple systems. And so I think when people are coming to the conclusion that stream processing is the thing, is the network in between all of these various pieces of technology, including custom business logic in certain cases, custom processing logic in certain cases, um, where that makes sense. And I don't think that it's about ideological things like ETL versus ELT and like real time versus batch. I think it's just pragmatic. I think it connects the world, you know, together. Sorry, that's pithy and stupid, but like, you know, I think it's the real deal. I really do. And I think it's here. I think it's finally here. My guest today has been Eric Sammer. Eric, thanks for being a part of the real time analytics podcast. Tim, it's always a pleasure. Anytime. And there you have it. If you feel compelled to help us spread the word and grow the real-time analytics community, you can give us a rating on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or wherever fine podcasts are sold. If you're watching us on YouTube, hey, subscribe and of course, hit that notification bell. 
And you can always share your favorite episodes on LinkedIn or Twitter or wherever it is you do social media. Thanks, and I look forward to talking to you in the next episode. 